Okay, well, let's pray this morning. We're going to talk about uh, awe again. We're in this series called The Awe Factor. And so would you join me in prayer? Father, as we come this morning, I'm excited about the topic. I'm excited about you and what you can do through the topic. We had a great day of awe yesterday when worship just broke out in the wedding. And Lord, that was spectacularly cool. And you are given full permission to be here. You are the most honored guest. We pray for your manifest presence among us, Lord. It's not so much me as it is your spirit using me as a tool and also uh, for you to have freedom to speak to each of us individually. You can say something uh, that you want to have said. You can have a conversation that's completely apart from the message and strike something in someone's heart that they otherwise wouldn't have heard this morning. And so we... uh, Submit ourselves to your sovereignty in that, and we bless you for it in your name. Amen. All right. So we're on the series Awe, and last week we began to explore this topic. Uh, Author, I told you about the book Awe, and uh, Paul David Tripp, he's a person that writes and author, marriage counselor. Many of us are familiar with him. We went through the marriage series that he did. And uh, he makes the assessment that we are hardwired for awe. In other words, this is a basic component within the human nature is that we're going to be in awe of something, right? It's not a question of if, it's a question of what. And, um, and so we began to look at this, began the investigation into awe with the study of the universe. Uh, I've got another picture, found another picture this week. This is, uh, Tim Davis took this picture and he says, Mitch, I got a bunch of these. This is at Paragon Lake, out by Winthrop. That's his daughter Sarah sitting there. And uh, it's just a fantastic picture. And um, we were chronicling last week the awesomeness of the universe. And if you didn't, weren't here last Sunday and you had to go out and play in the snow instead of come to church, um, you can go to our website and uh, download the message and get caught up. But the main point, if you were to say, what was the main thrust of it? The main point of... The message was the fine-tuning of the universe is so incredible that it couldn't possibly happen by chance. The implication of which means that we are, what we're really dealing with here is that an awesome universe has to have an awesome universe maker, right? It didn't just pop out of nothing. The numbers are off the charts. We talked about 10 to the 37th power and how crazy a number of that is. The brilliance what I'm suggesting this morning, the brilliance of the mind and the person behind the creation of the universe has always been proclaimed, lauded, and assumed by the Bible. You can't read anywhere in the Bible or it doesn't really talk about it. Uh, the greatness of God, the greatness of his genius, the greatness of his artistry. And uh, from the beginning, the Bible simply says this, and in the beginning, God created Now just stop there for a second. Think of what you know just rumbling around. Some of us are way farther than this other. But think of what you know about, for example, quantum mechanics and quantum physics. And think about what you know about all the different things like string theory and stuff that you've kind of dabbled with and played around with. And that mankind has been chasing now, right, scientifically here, trying to find the footprints that God left in place a long time ago. And we still can't get it all together. Scientists have now got it down to 17 levels. When you take the atom and drop it down to quarks and all that kind of stuff, it's 17 layers. 
My buddy John Burkholder talked to one of his buddies at the University of Washington, who's a physicist, and he asked his friend, well, what's after that? He says, we don't know. It's like something holds it together. And the Bible would simply say, that is evidence of the fingerprints of the creation of God. When it's talking about the awesomeness of God, Scripture says a couple categories. First of all, he's awesome in wisdom. If you look at, at Job, where he's talking, where this whole confrontation, this totally unfair situation from a human perspective, Job just gets smashed, and uh, it seems like Satan has a field day with the whole thing, and Job's uh, proclaiming his innocence and righteousness. His friends are saying, you're nuts, you're a sinner, you've obviously done something wrong because look at your life. And this whole debate goes on for 38 chapters, and most of us get lost reading through that. But when you get to chapter 38... God puts a quash to this whole thing and says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Mr. Smarty Pants. Mitchell's paraphrase translation. All right. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you've got that kind of understanding. Who determined the measurements? Yeah, sure, you've got it figured out, right? You're so smart. Or who stretched a line upon it? Or where... Where its base is sunk, and who laid its cornerstones? Can you dig down in the earth and find the foundation points? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is just one passage that calls out the incredible nature of God and what he created. If you look at uh, scripture, it also talks about God and the awesomeness of his character. Isaiah 45 says, Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it from of old? Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God, a Savior. There is none besides me. Scripture says God's character is good. God's character is really solid. And I just realized I have Exodus up there and I'm reading from Isaiah. All right? So this says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. It's a God who tracks generations, right? I switched it because I thought this was a better verse. I forgot to switch it in my notes. My apologies. But it's talking about the incredible nature and character of God. And Scripture proclaims simply this. God is good. You've heard the saying, God is good and God is good all the time. Does that look that way on, on, on where we live? But how it's measured in eternity, how it's measured here are different. Scripture says God will turn all things for good to those who believe Him. God is also... Awesome in His holiness. Now this is one we don't get. We're not holy, not even close to it. Once in a while we sniff it and it scares us to death. But when we talk about the incredible holiness of God, we just sang it this morning. But in Isaiah it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of His robe was filled at the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Two He covered with His face. Two He covered with His feet. Two, that he flew, and just think Steven Spielberg here, all right? Lightning flashes, thunder rolling, just blown away. And Isaiah hears them say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
The foundations of the threshold shook with the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And you get this kind of description on Sinai, when the people saw God on the mountain, you get this kind of description in Isaiah right here. You get this kind of description in Ezekiel. You get this kind of description in Revelation that we sang this morning. Right? Just the awesome holiness of God that literally shuts every mouth in opposition against him. There's absolutely no flaw in him. He's absolutely pure. Absolutely holy. God is awesome in his glory and majesty and power. This is uh, out of Exodus, the mountain, uh, when Moses went up to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. It says, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up with like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And it goes on to say, as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. And he came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain and the Lord called to Moses on the top of the mountain and Moses went up and it says, the people trembled with fear. Like, we don't know what that is, but that doesn't show up every day. And that's freaking us out. Okay, I don't know if Hebrews said freaking out, but language similar to that, right? Let me read a, a couple other passages. Uh, First Chronicles kind of pulls a lot of things together. It says, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Many of us know that verse as a song, right? And he's to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the people are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the people. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. And bring an offering and come to before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nation, the Lord reigns. Another passage, Isaiah 40, captures what we've been trying to highlight. It reads like this. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him. His recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them on his bosom and gently lead those who are with the young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands? I was talking about the oceans of the world are measured in the hollow of your hand. This is the hollow of your hand, just in case you were wondering what that's describing. Okay? It says, Who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand? Who's marked off the heavens with a span? The universe and the... the the dimensions we were talking about last week, a span is from your elbow to the tip of your finger. It says God measures the universe with the span of his hand. Who has marked off the heavens with a span and enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in the scales. 
or the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Many of you will remember this being read during Chariots of Fire, that movie, right? Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for the burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or to what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman. He sets up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they will wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. And to whom then will you compare me, God says, that I should be like them, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by numbers? That's talking about the stars there. And calling them all by name. One of the things is the number of the billions of stars and trillions of stars in the universe. The idea that God knows each of them by name. That's a pretty amazing mind. Just think about it. How many names do you know that you can name people by names? Now think about naming the stars. Right? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one of them is missing. This awesomeness that we're trying to capture here this morning then is parlayed directly across to Jesus in the New Testament. You're aware of this in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and said, Abraham, rejoice to see your day. And they said, dude, you're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. What's that I am title? That's the same title God used when he met Moses at the burning bush. Because of that, they wanted to stone him. Because he, being a man in their eyes, was declaring himself to be God. They didn't have eyes to see that God was actually standing in front of them. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. This Jesus that we talk about as we come to the holiday season, and we're coming up, rolling up on Thanksgiving, and then we'll roll up on Christmas, this Jesus, Scripture says, is that great mind who created the universe. If you look at Matthew 17, we know this story well. He was transfigured before him. He had brought uh, Peter and James and John up on the mountain and while they were there, right? Special effects. And 
It was transfigured before him. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. Of course, Peter handles this eloquently, right? Babbles all over himself about making tents and that kind of stuff. And it goes on to say, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. The holiness of God is a ferocious terror when we run into it. Because the first thing you recognize is he's holy, we're not. Right? And apart from the covering of Jesus, we have nowhere to go. That's the most amazing gift that we should never take for granted. Hebrews says this about this. It says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted as worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses is faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to these things that were spoken to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as the son or as the builder. Moses was a servant in the house. Jesus built the house. Okay? That's what I was trying to say. When you read descriptions of people running into the resurrected Christ, Daniel, one of the most righteous men that ever lived on earth, fell down as dead. John, his best friend, met resurrected Jesus, fell down as if dead. Stunning transformation. And so we have this awesome, overwhelming God who strikes people with awe and terror at his presence. Now, obviously here this morning, if you haven't got on this, I'm case building, right? You guys are in school. You know what case building is, right? Be of the case, argument against it, right? That kind of thing. I'm case building. I'm case building an argument for the awesomeness of God. And so the question then this morning is this. On a real basic level, what goes wrong? If that's true, how does that go so sideways? How, how do we not connect with that? How does it just go, right? Or, or right? And we just miss the whole thing. How do we forget or overlook the greatness and the glory of God? And one of the answers is, we forget. We have what Paul uh, Tripp says is awe amnesia. We forget about the awe of God. You ever had where God's done something awesome for you and then five years later you're looking back going, did that really happen or did I imagine that? You ever done that, right? You're all looking very stiff right now like, how's he going to get us? Okay, I'm not trying to get you. Okay, you can relax. It's just us. How do, what goes on? How, how do we forget? How do we forget the greatness and and glory of God? And I want to suggest that um, this is part of the witness of Scripture too. If you go through Israel, if you look up here in Psalm 78, it says they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. He's talking about the wanderings in the desert. In Psalm 106, it it says, but they soon forgot his works. Not just forgot his work, but what's the word that's added there? Soon. Right? 
You ever done something nice for somebody and they walked away from you and five minutes later they didn't remember you did it for them? Right? Quickly can fall off the table. Psalm 106.21 says, They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. So how does God slip off the radar screen of our attention? Right? How does it go blank? How do we have no recall? How, how is there no appreciation or, or gratefulness uh, for the th- things that God has done? And I think that we all relate to this, right? So let me give you four things that I think are part of this and uh, think it through with me this morning. How, how we miss the awe of God. Here's how we miss the awe of God. Here's four ways... We miss the awe of God and let, let's walk through them together. It says, we miss the awe of God when we become distanced from the story. Uh, I don't know if you know the name Bruce Wilkerson, a walk through the Bible, uh, incredible guy, good uh, man of the Lord. But he did a thing called three chairs. And he would set three chairs. There'd be a chair here, there'd be a middle chair, and then there'd be a third chair. And the first chair, he would talk about how God had worked with Israel and incredible miracles and that they ex- experienced Sinai, they experienced the parting of the Red Sea. They experienced the man in the desert. And they talked about how they knew God because they had firsthand personally seen him at work in their lives. And that generation had a hands-on experience with the awesomeness of God. But then if you go to the book of Judges, it says, and then the whole generation that was with Joshua died. And the second generation heard about the miracles, heard the stories, right? Senior high or junior high, if you were here, they're upstairs. You hear about the stories of your parents, but you don't directly experience them. And so it becomes stories. It becomes something you talk about, not something you yourself have directly experienced. And so a distance begins to build in. You hold to the lifestyle, you hold to the principle, but it's because of... uh, what you were taught, not what you actually experienced. And then a third generation comes in after that generation with Joshua and it says they didn't know God at all. And God had to raise up judges so that they would re-experience it. Three generations removed. You have the first generation that experiences the miraculous work of God in a saving way in their life and the stories are abundant. Right? You have a second generation that's heard the stories, but hasn't experienced God personally. They just know of the stories, but they haven't met Him personally. One of my prayers for all our students is that they would personally meet Jesus in a living way. Mom and Dad, you put into Him, you invest in Him, tell the stories for all you're worth, but you know, when it's all said and done, if they don't meet Jesus, they will fly out of the church. Okay? Because they've never met Him. They've never surrendered to him. They don't know him. They don't know his voice. They don't know what he looks like. They don't know what he sounds like. And so they will walk. They can tell you the stories, though. Oh, my dad got saved in a powdered milk factory. Right, Abby? But that doesn't mean they've experienced the powdered milk factory. But they have the stories. The third generation doesn't have anything. They don't go to church anymore. They don't have the stories anymore. By the way, I still think and I say this with great faith and hope, 
that we are on the brink of a great revival in this country. I still believe God cares about all the latchkey kids and the millions of kids who grew up without the name of Jesus, without the word of Jesus, without the life of Jesus, and that this country that's so ransacked with our youth and there's a whole powers trying to pull them away. I think God is going to flip that on its head. My personal hope and belief. right? Because I think God cares about the millions of teens that have been stolen from and the millions of children that have been stolen from. And so he re- works a revival, just like he did in the book of Judges. But we get distance from the story. This can happen for us. You ever get distance from your own story? Right? You ever sit back and somebody say, hey, how'd you come to Christ? Oh, man, let me think. How did I come to Christ? You ever done that? Right? Like, ah, oh. well, wait a minute, I've got to think that through for a second. How did I used to tell that 10 years ago? If we can really get distance from the story. Get out of the word. What happens? We get distance from the story. Right? All right, the second way is we can't even see it, though we're looking right at it. Uh, Tripp uses a great illustration. He went, there was an art exhibit going around the country, and it was one of the great art exhibits of the world. And he is a connoisseur of fine music and art. And so he was off the charts excited, and he wanted to bring his teenage son to show him the wonders of the artist's world and what was there. And as you can well imagine, the son was not too impressed. And the son yawned, and the son went, how long are we going to be here? And the son dragged his feet. And when he found out there were several other galleries to go through yet, he was like, are you kidding me? He was right there. He could see all the same things that his dad saw, but he couldn't see it. You ever been there? You ever been in church when everybody else is hearing from God and you aren't? Like, wow. Oh. You know, if you go to church and you're not walking, it's really like reading somebody else's mail. It's pretty boring. Because it's not for you. And you're like, eh. right? Tripp's son was right there. He, he saw it, and yet he couldn't see it. How many times have we walked around and we couldn't see it? This fall, I heard people say, man, look at the leaves and the trees. And I was telling my kids, look at the artistry of God. What a fantastic artist God is. Think about the processes he put in place with chlorophyll and all this stuff. And I was talking to, I think it was Dave Weed and I were talking, and Dave said, because of the summer and the heat of the summer and the thickening of the water, because they didn't have a lot of water, the chemicals in the leaves, when fall actually hit, they turned that brilliant, the, I, the leaves were like I've never seen this fall, just radiant, right, colors, radiant yellow, radiant, translucent colors. What an incredible artist God is. And yet many just drove. Why? Because we have to go to work. we got to go shopping. We didn't even see the leaves. We see it, but we don't see it. We don't stop long enough to acknowledge it. Third, we can become blind and forgetful because of our sin. Uh, I have numerous stories of people that I've met with, and I've wrestled with this one uh, on how to tell it, so I'm going to struggle through it. But basically the scenario goes something like this. Someone comes into my office... And they're at a point of, it's what I'd call a pivot point. They, they could go one way, they could go the other. They could go towards God, they could go away from God. Right? It, it's sitting on the balance and you sit down and you think it through with them and you saw some scripture and they tip towards God. And you go, all right, we got something here. And as a result of that, we need to put a couple steps in place 
and let's do this and I'll work with you and I'll help you and we'll do some things like this and then we'll come out and see what God does in this and out of this then you can make your decision which way to go. Often this has to do with relationships and people falling in love and falling in love with inappropriate or wrong people, right? And the question is to ask God to clarify, should I be in this relationship or not? So I walk through the things with them that tell them, here's the things that would tell you you should be in the relationship. Here's the things that would tell you you shouldn't be in the relationship. It's not rocket science. It's all laid out right there in the Word, right? And invariably what happens is if they're tracking, but they get in this middle bubble of asking God, of course, I'm not with them on date night, right? I'm not with them at the car when they park at the house. I'm not with them when they go to the door. So I can't control a lot of stuff. But I tell them about what's going to happen in that period of time. And here's my laws for purity. Clothes on, right? Don't touch private parts, right? Um, well, well, clothes on, don't touch... Uh, I messed my stuff up here. Close on. Don't touch private parts. Uh, oh, avoid horizontal surfaces. That's it. And then nothing good happens after 1130 at night. All right? I know, I'm an old fogey. And so I can't do that. But invariably what happens is if they don't do this part well, if they sin in that middle part, they will come back and they'll say, you know, I, I can't hear the Lord. I don't see it. And I, I'm going to just go with the guy or the gal. What happened in there? In the middle, they compromised. And because of their sin, they no longer can see the glory of God. They aren't willing to repent and admit they fudged. They cheated. They broke the standard. And instead of admitting they broke the standard, they're going to stay with the relationship. When you do that, can you see the glory of God? Now, that's just one example of how we do that. All right? But just think of your thought life. Think of how you think during the week. Think of the things you think about. How many of those thoughts tend to take us out from seeing the glory or the greatness of God? And then the last one is we become distracted by our stuff. Romans 1 tells us the tendency is to worship the creation rather than the creator. And uh, I think that's becoming really apparent these days with that little thing we use all the time. Right? Uh, we, matter of fact, when we're driving, how good is that when we're doing that little thing all the time, right? The statistics are now that if you are uh, texting or stuff while you're driving, your driving is worse than a drunk driver because you're more distracted than you actually are if you're drunk. And that's why they say don't drive and text. And the question, you know, with that use is, are, are we looking up or down? Which way do we tend to look? Right? And I found a great article this week. It just showed up on Facebook. I love how the Lord does that. And uh, Sean Parker, he was the founding president of Facebook. You all hear about Zuckerberg, but Sean Parker was the founding guy, and some of you know that name. Uh, he said, in a, he was at a conference this week, and he said, we built Facebook to exploit you. Quote, unquote. We built Facebook to exploit you. Here's what he said. He said, he and early Facebookers, uh, including Zuckerberg and a couple other guys, built the platform to, quote, consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible. We built it expressly to consume as much of your time and conscious attention 
as possible. Think about this. How much time do you spend on Facebook versus how much time do you spend in the Word? Right? Easy test. Not hard. What's got your attention? What's gripping you? He described the system of users posting content and receiving likes as a social validation feedback loop, exploiting a vulnerability in the human psychology. He says, what happens? You put something out there, people like it. Oh, I'm liked. So you put more stuff out, and then you like some more. And then it just, it, it just feeds and feeds and feeds. And like, I kind of look at Facebook once a week. I, I look for uh, Kat. I saw you last week. Yeah. And um, Kat Bratz is here, my buddy. And so, but I kind of stay away from it. I can't believe what people say on Facebook. I'm like, I wouldn't tell my best friend some of the stuff they tell on Facebook. It's like, wow. But, you know, when you think about that, let's be really clear here in this stupid culture we live in. When we're looking at stuff that our stuff, he's pointing out something that we already know. Sports, Facebook, TV, video games, movies, entertainment, our stuff, that's all entertainment. It's all about keeping us self-absorbed and not thinking through what we're supposed to be or what we're supposed to do. I told Pam when we were traveling uh, this and we got the incredible privilege you sponsored us to go and visit the missionaries. It was a kick and a hoot and a great time. But I told Pam when we were in Slovenia, in Ljubljana, I said to her, you know, I can see why people fall in love with traveling. And she goes, why? And I said, because it's all about you. Every place you go, all the amenities, the things are set up, and it's all about entertaining you, and it's all about you. So you can travel the world thinking it's all about your experience, and did you have a good experience? And I said, you could make your life about that. And our world tries to make life like that. But they are not what reality is really about. Can we agree with that? Stop the madness for a second. It's not what reality is really about. It's a bait and switch. Instead of being in awe of God, we're in awe of ourselves and what we get to do. You know, we're entering into a season of awe, right? The holidays, are just, they're built with it. Built around family, built around presence, built around uh, generosity, built around uh, appreciation, uh, Holidays are just flow with it. Uh, It's already on our our TV screen. Hallmark has already showed up, right? And I actually watched a Hallmark movie with my mom and sister, my wife and daughters. I was being a good husband, right? (laughs) And uh, and it was actually pretty good till the end. I was like, that's the end, Dad. Stop it. (laughs) But let's not be forgetful. Let's not have awe amnesia. Let's remember who we're really supposed to be in awe of. Let's cultivate that. Let's grow that. Let's encourage that among us. Let's remember and be in awe of the great and awesome God who calls us His children and He says that He's our Father. Isn't that spectacular? Let's pray. Father, as we walk through this, I pray it connected with my friends the people here that you've drawn for Northview Community Church. And Lord, uh, we forget quickly. I know it. I know it in myself. I know my friends know it. 
We give to other things what should be given to you. We get distracted. We get pulled away. And, um, and then you bring us back like yesterday at the wedding and then like today with worship and uh, thinking through and you, you call out to our heart and you, you call us back to focus on you and you're so gracious that way and so kind. Lord, may we not be awe amnesiacs this holiday season. May we look for your glory. May we look for being in awe of you and what you've done and what you are presently doing. And may it fill our hearts with a joy that only you can give. And we seek you for that to be a witness to the people around us. Might they sense we're in awe of something different than they are. And may it be you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.